I took the job in banking because that was what I was supposed to do. It felt like coming out of college, that was one of the best jobs. This is back in the early 2000s. And I was just told that was what I was supposed to do. And I think that kind of playbook of finally the next like ring on the ladder that usually somebody else has defined that ring, not yourself. For me, in a strange turn of events, I, in the middle of that investment banking couple of years, took a job in Iraq working for the, for the U.S. government. Just argued my way into that position. Welcome to the Impact Multiplier CEO podcast. I'm Richard Metcalf, founder of X Quadrant, and my mission is to help the world's top CEOs and entrepreneurs shift from incremental to exponential progress and create a huge positive impact on our world. Now, that requires you to reinvent yourself and transform your business. So, if you're ready to play a bigger game than ever before, I invite you to join us and become an Impact Multiplier CEO. Sometimes we think that having an incredible mission is a panacea, that it almost solves all of our problems in terms of recruitment, retention, uh, purpose, uh, hiring, etc. Well, in this conversation, I speak with Craig Lund, who's the CEO of Mightier. Mightier is an incredible app that's used to actually help children improve their emotional response to stressful situations. Brilliant idea. And Craig talks about that journey, but he also explains how that very mission that is so important to him and his team actually have downsides that you don't actually get in more mercenary, profit-driven companies. So if you're on a mission or you want to have a big mission, this is an important episode to listen to so you get a balanced understanding of the benefits and the challenges of being on mission. Enjoy this conversation with Craig Lund. Hi, Craig, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Richard. It's great to be here. So I'm going to dive straight in. What I know about you is that you started your career in investment banking. Fast forward a few years, and here you are as the founder, co-founder, and and chief executive of Mightier, which is a digital health company. Uh, I know that you're somebody who is on a, has a mission, has a sense of purpose, and is doing this to create an impact-driven business. So... How did you kind of move from one world, that world of finance or, you know, the, being chief commercial officer in the business before, you know, into this real mission-driven mindset? What was that journey for you? Are you saying investment banking isn't uh, mission-driven? <laughs> I mean, I, I took the job in banking because that was what I was supposed to do. It felt like coming out of college, that was one of the best jobs. This is back in the early 2000s. And I was just told that was what I was supposed to do. And I think that kind of playbook of climb the next like ring on the ladder that usually somebody else has defined that ring, not yourself. For me, in a strange turn of events, I, in the middle of that investment banking couple of years, took a job in Iraq working for the, for the US government. Just argued my way into that position for whatever reason, I think feeling trapped in a Wall Street office, not necessarily wanting to be in that, in that job and realizing that very quickly. And then it really was almost like a defining moment that I think about where I was in Baghdad. I'd been there for about six months. I was starting to think about my transition back to New York. And I had a bunch of private equity firms that were sending me emails and hoping to interview me. And I actually was doing a few interviews, literally sitting in Saddam's palace in a conference room on the phone with 
I remember the specific interview with First Reserve, which was like an oil and gas PE firm in Greenwich, Connecticut, that somebody I'd worked with at the bank had recommended me. And we're in the middle of the interview and a, a rocket literally hit the building. So the whole building shook, the alarm went off. I you know, dutifully made my way down into the bomb shelter in the basement. It sounds strange, but I think humans are incredibly adaptive and flexible. At this point, it happened so many times, it was a bit second nature. And so I went back up and then I called back into the interview 30 minutes later. And the, the, I can't remember his name, but the gentleman on the line who was interviewing me asked me a question to the effect of, you know, what, so what, what stocks are you interested in? Or if you were to make a pitch to us right now of a stock to invest in, which stock would that be? And that question just struck me as so ludicrous given my current situation. I, I honestly, in that moment, I decided that was it. I was, it's like, I don't want to do this. Why am, why am I on this call? And it was just one of those clarifying moments in life. And I really never looked back from that. So I killed all my interviews with all the other finance companies. I actually told the bank that they'd been very nice to me and kind of given me a leave of absence. I told my boss, Michael Johnson, who was the head of the group at Deutsche Bank at the time, really appreciated that, but I would be coming back and I would happily serve out my remaining analyst term, but I was, I was going to move on. Probably cost myself a few dollars in that, in that bonus year, but that's okay. And then from there, kind of started a journey of trying to figure out a bit of cross-elimination of what I wanted to do. And I'm happy to go through that, some of those interim steps, if that's helpful, or, but that, that was kind of- so what, are, what are you fast forward to? Yeah, so, so what was, if you like, I mean, I'm sure there are various points on this journey, but what was, again, the pivotal moment that made you say, you know what, I'm going to build Mightier? Yeah, so, I mean, I was 30, what was I, 30, I was like, I'm approaching the age where this is going to become too hard to do to start something on my own. So I was like, in my mid-late 30s, and I said, man, if I don't do it now, when am I going to do it? I was still single. <laughs> so I think I'd just gotten out of a relationship. So I was in a life stage where I could take risk and I felt like I'd learned enough and been the number two at a couple companies that I said, okay, I wanna go figure out something on my own. And so that started a process for about, what, about a year. You know, I was thinking about different things I wanted to do. It all started to kind of point back towards mental health, education, kids was like a main focus. And I literally just kind of walked the earth. I was talking to different research groups looking at different applications and met the team at Boston Children's at the time. And it did feel like one of those moments where it all kind of coalesced on a single idea where they had been working on these video games that effectively operate as therapy for kids. So instead of putting a child in front of a therapist, you give them this video game experience that is kind of interactive therapy. They had worked on a prototype. I got really excited about the prototype, saw the opportunity, and then almost like commensurate to the week, my nephew who was about six years old at the time had one of these really like big emotional outbreaks on disney world couldn't get on a ride huge i mean huge outbursts of anger from a young child which if you've ever seen it is a very it's a very jarring experience to see a young child with that much pent-up uh, aggression and so it was this like personal aligned with the professional interest that really collided in that moment and i just decided to go for it yeah yeah, it's interesting, though, because it wasn't like you had a child and that was like really intimately part of your world at that point. You were a young single guy, and but you kind of somehow, these things just came, these, these events. Well, yeah, I think the events conspired. I generally, maybe a bit like, 
I try to take the long view, just in my own thinking, not only about myself, about a variety of things and wanted to, and I'd done, the prior two things I'd done were all the things that I felt passionate about, solar technology, one was around antibiotic susceptibility. So it was stuff that I thought could at least bend, bend the world in a, in a hopefully a positive direction. So I, I was looking for stuff like that, found an area I really liked, but then also had my, my nephew was incredibly close with. He, watching my sister struggle with trying to get access to care, seeing my nephew fight every tooth and nail to not sit in front of a therapist. He actually was one of our first like pilot gamers. He and I used to play. It was a really kind of beautiful way to connect with him and then also to think about a way to scale this, reach millions of kids. So yeah, that all kind of oddly, I'm not a believer in fate, but <laughs> I'm a believer of serendipity and interesting collision of, of, of events in the world that all kind of came together in one moment. Yeah, it's great, but did, because I know that Mighty Now has you know served over, I think, 100,000 kids, giving them access to, to mental health care, which is, which is amazing. And what I, hear, what I understand is that this is really attracting a lot of people, right? A lot of people really get behind this mission of solving these mental issues in non-medical ways, if you like, right? I mean, you deal with it through, through games and through other ways, rather than giving people drugs, which I'm sure inspires a lot of people. So what's been, uh, what's been some of the downsides of this? Because we were just talking a little bit earlier you know, around, like, it sounds amazing, right, that you're on this kind of impact-driven business. Uh, a lot of people are passionate about it. You know, you know, is there any downside, right? Uh, you know, often the story we like to tell ourselves is that, like, an impact-driven business is everything that, like, a, quote, unquote, normal business is, you know, like a, just a financial-driven business. But it's like even better because we've got the financials, but then you've also got the purpose. And so what could be better, right? So have you, have you encountered any downsides in that? Or would you say, no, no, it is literally just in every easier, more fun in every respect, which might be a good answer. Yeah, no, I think there are two tensions or, or, or trade-offs to, that come to mind. One is around, frankly, like the financial architecture of the business, right? So if you claim... And we wrestle with this all the time. If you claim you're in this to help kids, how can you charge $40 a month? Like, how can you justify some of your pricing? How can you justify the return? And I do think, so there, that's one, I'd say almost around like business model, pricing structure, the profit motive, if you will, and how you think about that. And then the other one I do think is around hiring and culture. And so I'm happy to unpack both. I mean, on the, on the hiring and culture one, yeah, I know you and I were talking about this. I think there are almost two trends. On the one hand, and I think this often happens in startups, you have this kind of like bimodal age, age experience distribution. We do really well at attracting really young people coming out of school, have uh, you know lower financial burdens, can take more risks, just more oriented that way. We do really well with a mission attracting really young people at that stage. I think what's often happened with the kind of middle, more experienced executives is they get so excited about the mission that they argue themselves into a job that maybe isn't the right fit. And often we've made a bunch of bad hires, I would say, because of that trend. You know, if you're running a mercenary business that's just all about making money, you're just, you're not gonna have that problem, right? And especially when they're in sales and marketing, they know how to, they know how to position themselves. And so we've had a really hard time, especially in the marketing front where I say, do you really understand like what it means to be in a startup? Do you really understand these like, some of the challenges we face? Do you really understand how to operate in a resource-constrained environment? And you get these talented executives that know how to say yes in a compelling way, but it turns out, because they're so passionate, they want to like pour all that energy into this new mission, 
and then it turns out to be a disaster from a HR talent standpoint. So knowing what you know now, what did, how would you do that differently? We have become, I mean, we continually to iterate on our hiring process, but I would say we have become much more rigorous, not only on trying to align it's like size of company. Does this person really know how to operate in the stage of company we're at? Which has been the source of a lot of our bad hiring. Somebody who's worked at larger companies, maybe they've touched smaller, but they've never really worked at a startup. And then also, so there's the fit on the kind of culture stage size, and then there's the skill set fit. So we have, and I'm happy to go into as much details as you'd like, but we have much more like interactive cross-functional team interviewing process. We also force people into exercises, very tangible, gritty, drawn out exercises. We force them, especially for senior leaders, to interact and problem solve with teammates. So we actually put them in a room to solve a problem that requires a lot of these trade-offs we're alluding to, where you don't have a ton of resources, you have to think creatively. So as much as we can, try to strip away the, the, the selling that they can do in a more face-to-face, standard, culture-based interview and put them in scenarios that unearth whether or not they truly can fit the job. Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, well, it makes a lot of sense, right? I guess because you're right, it's easy to kind of say yes and, and get excited and, and, and demonstrate that emotional connection to a mission. It's easy to be seduced. Like, I, you know, you like these people. They're talented, interesting people. You want to spend your time with them, right? It's, it is, I do think it is a particular issue, especially with mission, mission driven. Companies. And do you think that the issue is that they, they're, they're waiting for other people to do, to not like, they don't want to roll up their own sleeves. Does that tend to be the kind of the fundamental issue? Or is it that they, yeah, the, it seems too small fry for them, the things they're being asked to do? Uh, or the- I think especially early days, and this has been kind of an overused concept is like first principle thinking, like really getting to the root of what is going to drive success, like really understanding something. I think when you're in a startup, like for us trying to tackle healthcare, we've had to get incredibly nuanced about how the heck to actually make Mightier fit into the healthcare system. I mean, digging into arcane details, asking three questions beyond what is humanly like makes sense. Like just going, you literally have to, I mean, there's like that mentality where you just have to be so hungry and curious because I think if you don't go that second or third layer down, you may miss the nuance that I don't want to be overly hyperbolic. There's the difference between making like mightier work in healthcare or not, as an example. And I think there's a, that's, so that's a personality trait. I'm not sure that really depends on your experience level. I think that is a bit of a personality trait that we try to unearth. And then there's a the question of, okay, so say you have that personality trait. Are you willing, able, or open to actually operating in a very lean environment, given where you're at in your career? Got it. Hey, Craig, so you, you talked before about this first one, which was around, like, if you're doing it for the kids, how can you charge so and such, such and such a month? So where does that show up? Does that show up, like, in, your, in, you, in you? Like, do you go, like, should I really be charging for this? Or does it show up in your employees or in potential partners? Or, you know, best, you know where, where do you see this, this question come up? Yeah, everywhere. <laughs> it's a, and that's where, you know, my job as the co-founder CEO, I write this document that I call the, I call it the mightier true north. And I update it every quarter. And I try to just hit this stuff head on and not, you know, not hide from it. I guess I am more of a, I come at this and maybe because in a way I like solving systems. I was 
I was intellectually interested in these solving these problems. I had a personal connection through my nephew, but I don't have like a child. Like I'm not, I'm not so deeply emotionally like pulled down into this, if that makes sense, that it almost gives me at least one layer where I can think more like a systems level. And so I think this is how I think about it. I, and I say this to the team openly. Right now, we know if we charge $40 a month, we cannot serve all families. We know we're going to bend higher socioeconomic. But my, argue, my argument, I sit up in front of the company and I, and I make this argument, is that if we don't figure out how to make a financially profitable business model to serve those families, there's no way we're ever going to be able to figure out how to make Mightier available and accessible to, like, say, families on Medicaid. And so the strategy has been to hope to focus and be honest about the financial need to show a provable, scalable model there, and then to try, and this is where I think we do bend, we then try to find, we're probably more proactively, try to find channels and business opportunities that can serve kids of, of uh, without, without means. And there may be a little bit of a, you know, honestly, a little bit of a tension there. Like, in a purely capitalistic, make as much money as you want model, should we be chasing after Medicaid as much as we are? Maybe, but it's also easy to kind of delude yourself into that because it's also a way to make sure your mission is being upheld both in your eyes and the eyes of your teammates and stakeholders. But I get the question and I get it from the team all, you know, all the time. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. This is just a quick interlude to remind you that my book, Making Time for Strategy, is now available. If you want to be less busy and more successful, I highly recommend that you check it out. Why not head over to makingtimeforstrategy.com to find out the details. Now, back to the conversation. And how do we respond to that? Do they kind of... They kind of accept it. Do they? Uh... It's a constant push and pull. I mean, really. I mean, I think it's like. Uh, so we we would do things. We did some like pro bono charity work. So we had a, a more specific part of. Here's our business. We need to figure out a financially lucrative, scalable model. We are also going to dedicate some of our time to. We did a partnership like a Boys and Girls Club, very clearly mission oriented, brand centered activities that put my dear in the hands of kids that we acknowledged we're not going to make money and we're just open about that. And seeing that as a way to kind of round out or make our mission more than just some talking point that we're gonna to get to in 50 years, you know, cause there's always that danger you say, eventually, you know, eventually we'll help the kid, you know, the kids without means or the resources to afford my year. That's a dangerous game I think you can play. So there is an interplay here, it's always a tension. We've tried to balance that by doing some of this more pro bono work. And then also, pro, I'd say, prioritizing finding channels like Medicaid, where we could potentially do both good and well. And I, I really believe Medicaid is that opportunity for us where we can both reach a lot of kids, help a lot of kids, and build a really successful business. Yeah, thank you for, thank you for being honest about those challenges. I think it's, it's really it's helpful to kind of see that from the inside view. I think it's really insightful. What's been your success formula? Uh, you know, what's, what, how have you done this, right? How have you built this business, you know, this startup, which, which is, has, is scaled and is making a difference, you know, from the ground up? Well, like, what would be your kind of, I'm sure there's been various things, but what's your go-to skill? Like, what's, what's the area where you think, you know what, this is my kind of secret source that I've been able to deploy in this. This is my kind of reason for success. 
Well, I think the, the, the trait I try to embody the most is I'm, I'm, uh, I am relentlessly curious. <laughs> and I think culture starts at the top. And if you don't, if you don't model it, it's just see so many companies that write their culture tenants and they sound great and they're on a page and it's actually worse if they're on a page, if especially the CEO isn't living them because then they're, then you're, then you're a hypocrite. So I would rather have fewer tenants in terms of what we want to do and really live them than have a, this long list that just looks hollow and empty and then build sentences inside the company. So I think that I'm, I'm very critical of most, most of those tenants are generally kind of things which nobody could seriously argue against anyway, right? Like, uh, and that's sort of the problem with them, right? Yeah, sort of the problem with them is they're not, they're just cliche often. And then, <laughs> and then because they're cliche, they feel hollow. And so we try to be very, I'm a fan of very blunt, <laughs> candid language. Like the world is filled with so many fluffy words and so many euphemisms. So we try to just not only have a tenant, but also like say, what does it mean in practice? What does it look like? Here are the five examples of what that could be. So I'd say for me personally, especially in a startup, I think that's something I'm very good at. I'm good at like looking at ambiguity and saying, and not being afraid of it and like being curious about it. And then believing the way I try to frame it both to myself and to the team is I'm kind of like macro confident and micro humble. So I'm macro confident that we can figure this out, but I have no idea how the heck we're going to get there. And I don't want to pretend to you or anybody else that I know all the steps to get there, but I do feel like there's a there there. Like I have, we have conviction about the general direction. And that's a, again, a del delicate tension to kind of balance that macro confidence with the humility. Because if you have no confidence about where you want to go and what you want to do, then you have no direction. But if you're over precise and confident in how to get there, I think, you both stifle people's curiosity and how to figure it out. And you also, I think often leads to bad outcomes. If you try to pre-prescribe where you want to, how you want to get there. Do you find that you're in the part of the business that you're in, that the phase of the business, is that, is that a phase where you need to be particularly curious because you're exploring this business model and, the, and so forth and the whole organization needs to be like that? Or is it that you're actually kind of like in that role where you're the one being curious and everyone else is in execution mode? It's a good question. I, I, I think as a, as a, realistically as a company, I think you need the right balance between the two, right? I think for the stage we're at right now, I think we need a relentlessly curious CEO. In three years, maybe not, or even in, and I, and I have this, I've said this, I've stood up in front of the company and said, I'm not sure I'm the right CEO in three years or five years. And that's okay. I think where we're at stage wise, because there's so much ambiguity we need to work through as we continue to scale and figure out some of these challenges, especially around like how to fit mightier into healthcare, which is a very challenging problem. I think I need to be that type of CEO and I think I need to model that. And I think we need a, a strong portion of the company that's thinking and operating that way. 20, 30%, you know, and then yes, that's balanced with people who are more focused on execution. But I think that, I think that, well, it's an interesting question. That, that shift will evolve, but I think that often leads to, as we know, companies that go through more of an executional scaling leadership change that often stifle innovation, don't, there's a ton of bloat I see happen in all these, all these kind of like scaling businesses. Like you're a victim of your own success. You start making all this money, you start hiring all these people, you have building all this bureaucracy, and then 
next thing you know, you don't know how to innovate anymore because you've lost that relentless curiosity. So I think managing that transition, I think about that a lot. We're not quite there yet where we're getting to 500 people, 1,000 people. But I think that it's going to be a tricky thing to, to, to navigate. It's interesting. One of, my, one of my clients, part of my CEO community, uh, I think he, he's launched already, I don't know how many businesses, like three businesses in the last three years. And he's still famous to roll out a new business a year. Based, he's on this kind of relentless curiosity that you embody as well. And that he's definitely doing what you're doing, which is clicking in several layers deep into the nitty gritty of his industry, which needs a lot of innovation and is identifying new business models, new ecosystems, new financial media. And, and that's how he's creating a huge amount of value. But he knows very clearly that he's not, yeah, he's got a great CEO who helps run some of these things because he's not operationally inclined to want to manage a large team. And well, he can kind of do it, but he doesn't, he's really not in his sweet spot when he's there. Yeah, there's an interesting question about you personally, but then there's this broader question that like, as a company evolves, if there's a you know golden goose there and you've like cracked these codes, you need to just lean into that and execute. But how do you do that in a way that doesn't create bloat bureaucracy, too much bloat bureaucracy and ex executional overhang that you lose the culture of relentless curiosity inside the company? Yeah, exactly. So let's look forward, Craig. So what does multiplying your impact look like for my tier? Like what you know, where would you what's the next level for, for this business? I think we are I think we have the opportunity to make mightier a given, you know, I say like table stakes for every, every insurance plan, especially all the Medicaid plans, every child on Medicaid, I think we have the opportunity to make mightier available to every single one of those kids. And then on the more commercial healthcare side and employer side, I think that'll come along as, as well. But I think the, the biggest opportunity we have right now is 40% of kids are on Medicaid, which is a stat most people don't know which is a shocking statistic. The disproportionate level of need for Medicaid is, is much higher. And obviously the resources aren't necessarily there. And there's a lot of stigma around traditional mental health, like taking your child and putting them in front of a therapist. So that is kind of like when I stand up for the company, put a map of the company and say, we should be in every single one of these states. Every single one of these you know, 40 million kids that is on Medicaid should have access to, to a mighty But yeah, that's... Uh... That's a great goal, right? And that's uh, it's, and it's so specific as well, right? Because uh, it's really, really focused. And so you know when you've done it, I guess. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Well, what about you personally, Dave? Like, how are you going to need to shift how you operate if you're going to you know, be the CEO that make this makes this happen? Uh, you know, what's going to need to shift in your own personal way of working? Yeah, I think this, um, the tension we just talked about, which is my i'm i'm someone who in the meeting is going to push and ask you know 50 questions down right and i think and try to like open things up so open things up open things up open things up and i think let's say this prior example of medicaid we're going to do we're doing rollouts in arizona iowa and then hopefully followed by another 18 states once that is once we're kind of in that phase let's say on that business it's going to need less you know, everyday opening and more close execution. And so I think from a team standpoint, knowing that about myself and the team, hiring probably a strong, very strong, more experienced like chief operating officer style person, and then 
I will then likely shift more time into either following products, markets, experiences that we should be figuring out. So kind of not section off the opening, but like create an organizational structure that allows opening in other spaces while we execute on things that are we have very strong product market fit, very strong demand and growth happening where we need more pure execution. But there is, you know, I, I for me personally, to be honest, I don't know if, if like I want to be in this role in that type of environment. We'll see. I think that and frankly, the jury is still out. So I'll just, I'll just have to learn and iterate as we go. I can tell you personally, the other thing that happens, I think, is, you know, when you're a CEO of a larger company, the amount of energy you spend on external communication as well as, um, internal people management, which I do think I'm a pretty strong manager. I think I'm good, like interpersonally with people that way indexes on that side and the amount of time you can do more of this kind of like free exploration and creativity gets shrunk. So I think that's going to be a tension I'll have to think through personally. Yeah, I sense that. Yeah, that, that creativity and, and innovation sounds like it's a core cool strength, right? It's how you're creating the value. You do it, yeah. And kind of scaling the messages isn't necessarily quite a repetitive task in some ways, right? Uh, which might not, might, yeah, might not, might yeah, not. I don't really, I don't want to be, I don't care about being famous, right? So I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, I have zero desire interest to be on the cover of, of Forbes, you know, running some massive behemoth. It's just not. So, oh, well, you're on the CEO of You've reached it now. It gets me up in the morning, you know, it's just done. So that's it now. Yeah, that's it. Everything else will be downhill. So I think, yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> okay, Craig. Well, hey, this is, you know, this has been a fun conversation. Um, I, I really appreciated, you know, your, yeah, kind of opening the kimono a little bit on what it means to actually be building out this kind of a business where there are questions around, yeah, about how do we even charge given we've got a mission and there's a biggest mission, but we need to keep the lights on and we need to prove out the model and about hiring, you know, how do we actually make sure that we don't just over-index on enthusiastic, interesting people who are really excited by what we do, but actually make sure that people who are actually able and willing to operate in the particular constraint, the constraints that we have. Um, and then I think this, this question around, I think this really great point around finding those opportunities by going three d clicks deeper into the details. I think a lot of people miss that. A lot of people kind of look for the surface answers. Uh, I've been amazed, you know, speaking with my clients actually sometimes about, yeah, they've really gone in, they've really looked at things and they've found things which people haven't spotted, right? And that is the opportunity very often. It's like, this is the area. We That's kind of your only shot as a startup, right? <laughs> like the incumbents, are operating one to two levels down. They're not up every day asking three, four layers deep. If you don't do that, how are you going to beat them? Yeah, and that's fantastic guerrilla, guerrilla style marketing, right? It's like we're guerrilla business building. It's doing the things which the others don't do because it's uh, it's hard work, right? But you find the you can find them. So, thank you so much. I really wish you the best in this business, Craig. If people want to find out more about you or about Mightier, you know, where do they go to do that? Yeah, Mightier.com. Come check us out if you've got families. Uh, in need in your orbit, always, always happy to provide service there. And then uh, as, a, as a shameless plug, if, if you know people in the health, health insurance plans, Medicaid commercial that people think uh, might benefit from Mightier, I will happily accept, you know, any, any inbound email as well. So am I happy to give my personal email? It's, it's clund, L-U-N-D at mightier.com.
Perfect. Well, thanks. Thanks, Craig. Um, wish you all your best on your, um, on your mission to make mightier kids around the world. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Richard. Take care. Well, that's a wrap. If you received value from this conversation, please do leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. We deeply appreciate it. And if you'd like to check out the show notes from this episode, head to xquadrant.com slash podcast where you'll find all the details. Now, finally, when you're in top leadership, who supports and challenges you at a deep level to help you multiply your impact? Discover more about the different ways we can support you at xquadrant.com.